Welcome to Mindset, Mood and Movement, a systemic approach to human behavior, performance and well-being. Our psychological, emotional and physical health are all connected. And my guests and I endeavor to share knowledge, strategies and tools for you to enrich your life and work. Today, we are looking at how to regulate your emotions and find meaning in life and work. I'm joined by my guest, Adam Morgan, who's a clinical psychologist, who I'm very excited to speak to because he works in these fields uh, similar to me, but different. So we're going to dive in about these two topics. And we want to cover both of them for the very premise that emotions and meaning do go hand in hand. You need to understand how you feel about something, which is what it means, which is why we've got the topics coming together. So without further ado, Adam, welcome. Hi. Good to have you on. I'm curious, Adam, perhaps you could uh, share with us when you started to pay more attention to how your emotions are and how you regulate them and perhaps the the quest of meaning. Perhaps take us on a little bit of a, a journey to where that all began. <laughs> yeah, well, we were talking before about me and I'm going to have to go back quite a way, I'm afraid. So for me, as a, as a teenager, I guess I was, I didn't know what to do with my life at all. I hadn't got a clue. And everyone's telling you, you know, go off to university. And for me, they were saying, go and study engineering. And I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't want to be an engineer. Anyway, and so I was very uncertain about, yeah, I suppose the meaning of my life and, and, and thinking, well, what, what is it? And then, so that was kind of my frame of mind. And then I, I had a, a kind of a pretty formative experience in a, in, a, in a weird setting. I was one day just sat on a tube train. I lived in like northwest London. I was on the I think it was the Bakerloo line into Paddington. Now, I sat on this train, minding my own business, but with all of this kind of stuff on my mind. And out of nowhere, I had this kind of experience where I like lost all desire. So I, I felt completely satisfied. Like I could have sat on that tube train for all eternity and I'd have been completely satisfied. And, and I kind of became a bit timeless in that moment as well. Time kind of didn't really, didn't really sort of vanished a little bit and I and I also had this sense I lost all well fear is a strong word but yeah all anxiety all concern all worry so I felt completely safe and and it was yeah I felt I felt like I'd woken up from a dream in a way I felt like I was awake and alive like when you're a little kid and everything sparkles a bit and it kind of gave me this sense that you know actually there is for me that became the meaning of life so this you know this sense that you could be have this transformative experience of the world that you could feel completely beyond the normal concerns or the normal things that are running around inside your head and and then I remember coming across there's that Blake there's a that very famous bit of that Blake poem where he says something like what does he say to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower hold hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour and when I read that I thought oh that that was the best description that I felt I had of that experience I had on the train, particularly the eternity in an hour, because it felt like I was sitting in all eternity, and yet it was happening in in talk time, you know, in in clock time. So yeah, I suppose that was the first real point at which I started to feel a sense of meaning in life. Anyway, for me, like like a real sense of oh wow, this is this life can be this you know transformative, this rewarding. That's really such a profound experience from what you were saying on the tube that yeah. it sounds transcendental in many ways and it was it, it, yeah it sounds, it sounds really cool like a lot of time that we all could do with that it makes me think of the greek description of time this chronos which is sort of time moving forwards and kairos 
which is more like vertical time where time stands still. And of course, a lot of the masters from you know, yoga and Buddhism and these sorts of wonderful areas have often spoken about being present and presence. And of course, a lot of our, well, certainly for me, a lot of my anxieties are future orientated. That's the whole premise of anxiety. If one can be deeply present, then inherently there is nothing to fear, is there? Which is, I guess, a wonderful experience for you to dial into. I'm curious to where, uh, or how I should say, how that experience has then kind of been a platform or a sort of a start point for you to then move into certainly the world of clinical psychology, because that's that's a big field, isn't it? And of course, it's quite a technical field, clinical psychology, from my interpretation. But perhaps you could share how how that sort of a transcendental understanding of what, what means something to you and then how you took that forward. Yeah, so I think, well, for me, it, it, yeah, it made me very aware of the importance of your internal state, you know, your what was inside. And then, um, you know, so there's the, you know, there's that, the, the, there's a quote, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm going to get all religious on you, but there's the quote, isn't there? The, 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 what is it? The kingdom of heaven is within you or... So that's kind of idea. Yeah, it's it's inside. It kind of made me realize that actually what the 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 because so much of life we we spend trying to organize the outside in order to organize the inside. So like you know if I have the right external circumstances, my internal world will feel good. And I guess it was a pretty clear indication because I was sat on the Bakerloo line. Now it's nothing wrong with the Bakerloo line, but it's not lovely. So it wasn't. It was clearly my internal state that was the most significant thing in that that moment so I guess yeah it gave me that that feeling and I guess I just became curious or possibly possibly even obsessed with uh, like internal states and how do you get to feel like that because like you said the past and the future and the present that old idea if we all think about it we all only ever in the present moment we never go to we've been in the past but we never we're only ever in this moment. We can never go back, and we ne- can never go forwards either. We, and yet, as you said, we spend so much of our lives, mentally anyway, living in those other places other than the one, the one that we're in. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I became very curious about that. But I had no thought of psychology or. I mean, when I was at school, I did mass physics, chemistry, A levels, and so I had no thought of. The, I knew nothing really about psychology as a, as a form of study. And it wasn't in my in my mind at all. And so in terms of how I got into psychology, my story goes that I then met my, my wife and we got married, had to had a had a kid, and then it was like and back in back in this time I was, you know, I was I mean, I think I was dispatch riding, you know, I was just earning a living however I could. And but was starting to become aware that you know, I it would be good to have a a proper way of earning money. And there's a friend actually. A friend suggested, "Why don't you work in in a in the helping professions?" And I and I looked around at different professions, and I I liked the sound of psychology. I thought I I felt like it was something I was intuitively interested in. So that's that was it was quite a pragmatic choice actually. It wasn't, although it was connected to my interest in um connected to my interest in uh, experience. You know the, the the experience of being a human being. And, and and what that was. 
But I hear what you're saying there about that kind of being drawn into the, the helping profession. Of course, that, that's that's uh, the space which I've navigated into over the years, and not always. I've done many things. I did a podcast recently with someone. They asked me my life story, which it takes on a long convolute, long convoluted way. I'm not going here on this one. But when we think about you know what we're what we're really zoning in on today, like regulating emotions, finding meaning. In a world of busyness, chaos, uh, I see people who come to me, they don't come to me because it's all going well. They come to me because something isn't working. There's a stressor, there's a problem, there's a discomfort, there's something like that. And it, it's absolutely curious, isn't it? A lot of our world is predicated on externalized stuff. You know, do well at work, set up a business, get a great job. Then you'll be doing something. Then, you'll, then your life will mean something. And it's such a curious thing. I studied some existential uh, principles in applied to coaching now existentialism can seem a bit of a dark psychology or philosophy really but it's got some good stuff to say around uh, meaning because inherently there's no meaning in anything according to the existentialists so we as humans apply meaning we give meaning whether that's to our job or to our relationship or to our success or whatever that thing is and the meaning is in some ways generated. Now, of course, you and I probably both know that everything's influenced from the outside and the inside. You, know, you can't not come up with meaning that's not imbued by your family, friends and culture. But it's an interesting thing when we take perhaps an existentialist uh, lens and go, hmm, so if inherently the meaning that's created from my life, my activities, what I'm doing, is my own to generate, that gives us some, I think, gives us some interesting volition. And I'm really interested in how you've taken that because you and I spoke previously about a lot of the uh, Indian uh, principles, yoga and similar things. And I'd love to get your, your thought on making meaning yourself from your perspective, certainly is from clinical psychology, but perhaps from the sort of the more meditation Indian uh, influences that you've had. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I suppose. Well, I was, I was interesting. I was thinking about meaning. I was like, making dinner. I was chopping stuff up with a knife and I was thinking about meaning and what we were going to talk about. And then, and I was thinking, well, because, you know, being a human being is a complicated thing. And so it's inf already more complicated to think about meaning with, with humans. But I was chopping with this knife and I, I was looking at the knife thinking, well, what's the meaning of a knife? And I thought, well, it, I thought, well, it's kind of, it's kind of connected to what it does. It, it cuts things. So, you know, if you were trying to use a knife, I don't know, to, to write a book, it would be very unfulfilling and frustrating and you wouldn't get very far. So I was sort of thinking, well, maybe meaning is connected to, you know, utility or to to, to what, what something's capable of. And I suppose for me, that was going back to that experience on the tube train that, that gave me a sense of meaning. So it was like, well, this is what's possible as a human being. This is, and some of these things that you read, like the, the bit of the Blake poem and these other things, which sound all very unattainable. I'd had this little mini half an hour where they'd been real and so it was like oh actually it's not it is actually attainable i don't know how i don't know, I don't know you know what that's about so for me yeah the the meaning is to me slightly connected to you know like what's possible what we're capable of without going too crazy i'm not a big fan of extremes like you know well we, we should all climb to the top of everest and that kind of thing but in in a more sort of a moderate way so yeah for, i mean i as you said i got into eventually got into meditation after like 10 years of not being able to figure out this experience and where, where it came from and how to how to regenerate it I started to meditate because that was 
seemed to be a common thing that people said, you know, this is this is something that helps. So I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. And that I suppose, yeah, I don't know, has that given meaning? I guess it's given me a map to navigate being human and to understand what's going on and how to because they've got this concept, haven't they, of of like balance, you know, so you've almost like you've got your emotional self, you've got your your rational self, and then you've got if you like a wise self, you know, you've got a, a bit of you that is beyond that, that is transcendental, that that goes beyond, like you said, your thoughts or your feelings or and and so that is quite helpful to to realise that you've got those different bits of you, you know, or you've got those different ways of being. Yeah, that they're different basically, you know, and so and, and trying to navigate if you want to, to navigate to that bit of you which is a little bit more yeah, beyond transcendent whatever the word is yeah yeah i know my previous self or selves uh, and of people i work with are my sort of reference points a lot of the time we can be in our head now that's obviously a term of sort of phrase but we're in our thoughts we're in ideas we're in the concept of i and my life and my problems my challenges and it's really difficult to separate thoughts from emotions and of course they can't really be separated they are different phenomena and yet they go together and uh, as you probably know my work is curious around looking at how the mind and our states of mood and our states of movement all interweave because i've never met a person that doesn't have a body of some kind that moves in some way whether it's internal activity or external and there's all mood that regulates how we think and feel so it's all one interwoven system but if we're sitting around thinking i'm really struggling to feel good right now you know the, the basic premise perhaps someone who hasn't been on this journey so far and struggling with stress, struggling with emotions, and, and difficulty to understand the feeling of being in themselves in whatever type of life that is. How might you address that? If you, if someone came and sat in front of you and say, you know, Adam, look, I'm really struggling right now. I'm super stressed. I've got stuff. I've got all these pressures. Knowing what you know, how would you then bridge the gap between perhaps some of these experiences you've had and your experience as a professional? to let's say the layperson who doesn't have these experiences and what what would you say to them what would you do oh i think yeah for me as as you said meaning often you know where we are any one point in life is often built up from a range of different stuff but some of it is where we've been and what we've lived through so there's a huge amount of evidence to i mean i've worked as a as a clinical psychologist in the nhs i don't currently work in the nhs but i worked in the nhs for 26 years i think and 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 working in a mental health service, helping people with, I guess, you know, more complicated, more more tricky mental health, and and there's a huge amount of evidence to show that there's a there's a really clear link between mental health and addictions as problems and and you know difficult experience and you know the idea of trauma if if you like, and there's a whole bunch of studies called the adverse childhood event studies, which I don't know you probably heard of, but they they, I mean they're really old, they've been around since the eighties or possibly even the late 70s, I can't remember. But it su surprises me that we still haven't caught up with them. We still haven't really learnt the lesson of what they're saying. So for me, it, it, you know, if people are struggling, I would want to know a little bit about their story, about, about how their life has been, to try and contextualise it. Because often what will happen in life is we tend to self-attribute. So we, we, we blame our, ourselves for things that, that, don't go, that don't go well. And so if you can get a sense of what somebody has lived through and, and they can get a sense of it themselves, then 
that can give people other ways of understanding why they're struggling. So if someone's having a really hard time, they might be like, just think, oh God, you know, what's wrong with me? I, you know, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I shouldn't be stressed. There's no need for me to be like that. But actually, if you look at what someone's life has been like, you might find all sorts of reasons why they're finding life difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, in terms of like how to help, I think modern life has has changed our habits hasn't it of how we what we do in a day on a really practical level and we do nowadays it's quite easy to do things that are kind of fun but actually don't leave us feeling very good (laughs) you know so obviously smartphones and well back in my generation you know tvs and being sedentary i guess not moving like you talk about bodies not really using our body at all i mean it's quite possible i'm quite guilty of this i have to confess but yeah, it's quite possible to not use your body much in, in modern life. You know, you get up, you get in a car. Well, I'm a psychologist. I sit in a chair. I talk to people, you know, so not using, I think one of the things that, and there's loads of evidence around it, isn't there, around activity, showing that activity is really is as effective, for example, at helping people with depression as antidepressant medication. Yeah, yeah there, there are there are some studies on it. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I I see things in uh, I use a lot of models in my work. So I have some of my own, some from other people. A model that I use, which sort of fits with what you're saying, but perhaps gives a different perspective, is to consider three states, which is um, three things. Sorry, story, state, and structure. So I will say to a person, let's look at these three, and the structure is your body, yeah, and your perhaps your your home or your work environment, but the physical stuff. And we start with the body. Well, what's happening in your body? Some people are, are always amazed to know that when I call out if they're flexed, i.e. folded forward, well, that is actually the threat protection response. At its extreme, we'd be folded into a sort of a, a baby kind of curl up position. So anytime that you're flexed, which uh, invariably using a smartphone or computer puts you in, your feedback signals from your body to your brain are one of, there's a threat perception going on here. The body's in a slightly threatened state versus an open you know upper spines upright shoulders are relaxed but open and this is something quite easy to shift state of course is emotions and uh, we'll speak a little more about this shortly but how what emotions can you name them where are they in your body can you breathe in a way that regulates your nervous system and and some people when i say that they they look at me like i've just spoken in a very different language (laughs) So there's a really good in, but the story part is so curious, as, as you've alluded to. We are, I guess, the meaning of, of I is all built on, well, what was my mum and dad like? If you had parents, or what was my upbringing? What's the culture that I live in? And, and all this yeah. stuff that we're swimming yeah. in. Yeah, and what we're told, I mean, there, 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 are, there are people all around us who constantly want to tell us who we are. You know, there are commercially there are people who want to tell us who we are or, or what we should be or what we should want or what it means if we own certain things or don't own certain things or you know that and they have a very clear motive which is to make a profit you know they're not they, they they're not really there promoting our well-being they're, they're they're largely you know because they're wanting to sell us an idea so there's that and then you say then there's our families they also are the same they have their own ideas about themselves in the world and, and therefore all about so yeah so how do you navigate all of that i mean in india they call it you know the bhavasagala the, the the ocean of illusion you know how do you how do you find your way through that that confusing 
soup of ideas to what you feel like. What do you, what do I, what do I feel about myself and what what my life is about? And that's quite hard to get to. You know, it's quite a, a, a like you said a long path to get to the point where even possibly where you even think about that, where you even start to wonder about it. So yeah, I think that for me, yeah, helping you know. Generally, in my, my professional life, it's been about helping people with really complicated lives. And when I say complicated, I often mean traumatic, <laughs> really complicated, difficult lives to try and, yeah, take stock of what they've had to deal with and how maybe that's impacted them and develop a more compassionate understanding of of why they find themselves where they do. And then, but then you like to say, then there's all the, you know, then the, it, I mean, there are things that we know you can do to be more to be feel better like being more active but also we know that telling people to be more active is not an effective intervention for making people more active so there's all the research around actually if you are very directive in your approach to helping people then generally what happens is they don't feel better or they don't respond to that so for example the current advice that all gps get or that the the training that they we used to get it. I don't know why they gave it to us as psychologists, but anyway, the smoking cessation training currently, the last one I did in the NHS, basically boils down to just saying to people, look, if you ever do want to give up, let us know we can help you. So no telling them what to do or you know none of that, just saying, if you want help, we can help. Because actually that's the most effective thing you can do because the driver has to come from within. You know, you can't instill that in someone. And if you try often it doesn't go well. It kind of has to go inside out. I, I was reading, I sent a copy, it wasn't a link of it to my colleague um, that, that I, I work with. That there, I read an article on my phone, it was about a someone who worked as a negotiator in hostage situations. And it's quite interesting because basically the bit I read of it is he was saying the whole job is about emotion regulation. He said the whole thing is you've got to control yourself and then you can you can go on. He said because the moment you know you lose your calm, sort of there's this idea in psychology of a window of tolerance. This idea that we have this, you know, these extremes on either side, but in the middle we have this kind of state of being where we're we're relaxed but we're alert. So we you know we're we're not stressed but we're not asleep. But we're we're alert and we're calm. We're confident. And in what he's saying is you've got to get in that window of tolerance. And if you don't do that, it's a, you know, you're nowhere. So he was saying it's an inside out job. So you have to, you have to deal with the inside, your inside. And then actually he was saying the biggest issue in negotiating isn't actually the kidnappers. It's everyone else. It's the families of the victim. It's keeping everyone calm and keeping them looking after themselves so that they don't get stressed out. That's the biggest challenge, which, yeah. So it is something about has to come from within, doesn't it? It has to, you know, and as a, a helping person in someone's life that's a really is interesting challenge how do i how do i help someone in you know without becoming another person just telling them who they should be or what they should do so there's a risk that as a psychologist i just become another person telling someone this is how you should think about yourself this is how and i might think my version is better for them but it's still my version so that i find that a really fascinating thing how do you hold a conversation with someone that allows them to for, you know think for themselves about who they are rather than just being another person telling them oh you're you should be this kind of person you should be more relaxed you should be more active you should 
that kind of thing. Yeah, shooting, shooting all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, without even saying it. Of you course. know, you don't have to say should. You can yeah. imply it, can't you? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. You know, the coaching kind of philosophy, I suppose you say, the the overarching theme is always the we should hold the belief that the client has all the resources and all the utilities to to heal, to grow, to change. Now, I challenge that because sometimes you need to give people more skills. You know, you give people more skills and better choices. They normally use those skills and make better choices. So sometimes we need to provide the right tools. But you're absolutely right. I think that that energy of choice of change, it has to come from within. And and I think this comes back to our, what we're trying to frame here. It's like, how do you regulate your emotions? Well, first, you realize that things will happen around you. Stresses, problems, things that trigger you, that will always happen. But the emotions are happening within. And I find this is interesting because when we understand, well, they're my emotions. These are the, my biochemicals in my unique system. I do have some volition. I do have some choice here. And I think that's a really interesting one. As uh, we've probably spoken about, I use breathwork as a fundamental skill. I teach the basic stuff because the basic works, which is if you understand uh, the battle of the diaphragm, which is the lower, the sort of lower belly region, if that is the main prime mover in the breath and you're breathing through your nose, you're breathing out slower than you breathe in, the signals that come up from the physical, so from the, from the body, through the nervous system to the brain, are by default coming into intersecting into the what's called the autonomic nervous system. And regulating emotions for me starts at the body. It never not involves the thinking part, but it, it always starts with the body. It's one of the best ways to go in and regulate to do that. I'm so curious because you've got a, a wonderful piece of work on your website, which of course we will link in the show notes, but you've got a whole thing called the brain gym, which I like to spend a lot of time in the gym because gyms are cool in my view. <laughs> Perhaps you could share a little bit around some of your, your work and, and the tools that you use that how that might be useful in regulating emotions. Sure. So yeah, so brain gym is something that, but largely I have to, I have to give credit to a, a colleague of mine called Stolobig who, who wrote it and then I helped him write it and edit it. And, and so it's basically this idea that, you know, obviously, as you said, you can go to the gym and train your body. And the idea that, well, actually we can, as you said, we can also think about practicing training our internal world or, or you know, putting time into looking after after that. And yeah, it, it's it's based on, Stoller is very interested in all the neurological stuff. So it's based on some really simple models of how our brains are structured and function. So the idea that there's, that there's one common I mean, the, the brains are complicated and we do not understand it. And probably this is all going to change. But there is a general consensus that there are, there seem to be three structures in our in our brain. And, and in, in the brain, Jimmy, talk about the idea of the brain stem, which is like the basic functions of staying alive, heart and temperature and breathing. And, and that's fully formed in the moment we're born. And then we have this limbic system, which is kind of connected to our our sensory experience of the world is all out there in the world. And that's, if you like, the seat of our emotion and our reactions to the world. And then this cortex and the prefrontal cortex, the, the la, you know, the, the most, or some people say the most sophisticated, I don't know if that's true or not, but bit of our brain, it's the bit of us that as human beings, we can kind of reflect on things. We can step back and go, oh, I wonder if I should be feeling upset or wonder maybe, you know, the bit we talked about like that almost... Um, self-aware kind of bit where we turn around and detach a little bit from ourselves and, and and reflect on it and a lot of 
in motion regulation is about basically keeping all of those bits of our brain, well, particularly the last bit, keeping it online, if you like. So when we become anxious and we become stressed, if we have a trauma, our body goes into fight, flight, or freeze, or if it doesn't even get that far, it starts releasing cortisol and other stress hormones. And they actually kind of shut down a little bit the cortex because we don't really need it in an emergency because we don't want to be reflecting. We need, need to be surviving. So a lot of emotion, yeah. So the brain gym is about explaining how this all works to people and ideas around window of tolerance and then talking about, well, how do you then manage your what's going on inside of you if you've if your inside world has been rattled by your outside life? So if the outside has gotten into you, you know, if the, the things you've lived with have been so difficult that they've got inside your head and in your neurology, it kind of gets in your neurology. So yeah, and it, it actually, it's very much what you just said. So the first bit of we've thought about in terms of regulating emotion is, as you said, physiological stuff. So the first bit is we need to try and trigger this parasympathetic response that you were talking about. So we have our sympathetic nervous system, which is um, all about being stressed, I suppose, about ready for action so we you know with butterflies in the stomach racing heart sweaty palms you know and that that doesn't have we don't need a tiger to do that so even like recording today that'll do that my hands are more sweaty than they would otherwise be so any anything quite minor you could say you know this isn't a threatening situation what what we're doing but it doesn't matter because our in the back of our head our neurology kind of goes oh <laughs> and it gets us ready so so that's the sympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic is the opposite, is the, the relaxation response. So the heart rate reducing, the blood pressure going down, breathing slowing, which is why, as you said, breathing such a great thing to focus on because we can control it. I mean, we can't, some people say they can, but I don't think most people can consciously control their heart rate, but they can quite easily consciously control their breathing rate. So that's quite a nice available way into trying to mimic this parasympathetic response yeah so we talk about that in the beginning like how can you relax how can you calm down and then we've got a section all about well i suppose about meaning actually which is about how to how can we look at things differently so can we look at things that are going on in our lives in ways that leave us feeling less upset not it's not about deluding yourself at all because that's not helpful remotely but it's just about trying to can we you know, see things in a in a way that the meaning of which is is more compassionate to ourselves. So rather than you know thinking if something goes wrong, wrong, rather than thinking oh I'm an idiot, or I'm such a you know I'm I'm useless, which is it's really common. You know, I think it's really not unusual for people, for all of us to be quite hard on ourselves when things don't go well. So rather than doing that, you know, can we offer a different kind of thought? Can we kind of think i mean one thing i always i don't don't know but one thing i always do in my head is i kind of have this philosophy which is i'm always doing my best sometimes my best is not good enough i'm very aware sometimes my best is a bit rubbish but it is and that moment it was all i was capable of and i kind of have to have the humility to accept that's all i was capable of in that moment and it wasn't very good but i find that that is more manageable to live with than feeling like i should have done better i you know if only I'd have done whatever, it would have been better because that leads to feeling regretful. And and as we've just said, the past is gone. You know, you're not you're not going back and changing it. That's you know, we don't know how to do that yet. 
And so that's not happening. So it's it's how do you let it, how do you let the past rest? You know, how do you let it be, how, well, how do you let it be in the past rather than it live still in the present? So stop feeding it, basically. Yeah, it's a really yeah, nice I, term, stop feeding it, because like with, with anything that you give, like a fire, if you feed it fuel, it will burn. Wherever you put your attention, your, your focus will go there. And and it's easy to, well, I guess not easy. I think it's more simple to realize that it's your attention. You can choose where it goes. It's not always easy to, to move it, but it's simple. It's like, that's my attention. So I'm going to move it away from, let's say, um, uh, unhelpful thinking, discompassionate voices. Uh, hands up. I'm exactly one of those. I've, I've done a lot of work on this, but uh, I can still my, I would never be as brutal to another person as I am on myself sometimes. So, And we we do, we do, but... I love what you said there about realizing that that was the best you can do and perhaps it wasn't good enough. And I think there's something interesting about, and that's okay. <laughs> like we're human, even those who've done loads of psychology and all the stuff, it's like, yeah, we're still as infallible and, and uh, open to making mistakes and having good days and bad days as anybody. I, I wanted to, to just bring something and get your, get your, get your thoughts on it. This sort of self-identification I see is, a, is often a very problematic thing. Like uh, you do something, it doesn't work out. Let's say and you feel really bad about yourself. Like, oh, I, I've messed that up. I'm useless. I didn't do well at work or I really screwed up that job or whatever the whole thing is. But then it becomes so I-orientated. So the I, the identity of, of I, it feels so personal. And we've made it all about ourselves when actually... I, I think the brain slash mind is onto a sort of a weird pattern here because... How do we know all of these things would have gone right or wrong? There's so many factors in life. So when we overly identify with I made the mistake and I am no good, I think there's an opportunity to kind of slightly separate one's identity from the action and realize, oh, that's something different there. What's what's your take on that with both your psychologist hat on and also your understanding from meditation? Yeah, no, I definitely. I mean, I think that's you know one of the things in meditation is is exactly that that little bit of separation that trying not to react to the external and the internal world but just trying to observe it or to be a little bit detached from it not in a like unhealthy way because detachment can be unhealthy but in a kind of a you know so not not pushing it away but just standing back and 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 noticing um a bit like you know you would watch i don't know anything you might you know watch a game of football although that's probably not a very detached activity but yeah, potentially so i think yeah that's definitely one thing that can be really helpful so and and it's that you know going back to that brain model it's more of that cortex you know whereas you know if we get this idea of like limbic hijack where our emotions take over and we lose the ability to think and to to stand back then we're just driven by our emotion which isn't always bad you know it's not like emotions aren't bad but under the wrong circumstances it can cause trouble there's the there's that book i forget his name which is embarrassing but is he called stephen peters there's a the psychiatrist that book wrote the chimp paradox yes uh dr steve peters isn't it yeah. this is yeah so he, he talks about that doesn't he saying you know you, we've all got a, a chimp inside of us yeah. like an emotional being that is just not really rational and that's fine but we need to look after it you know, we need to, he calls it chimp management, yeah. doesn't he? You need to manage it because if we, if we, if we don't, or if we try and manage it with harshness, like if you had a real chimp, if you try to manage it by beating it or by being cruel to it, 
it's not going to go well. And it's the same for us. Like if we've got that bit of us, we need to be nice to it. We need to say, no, it's all right. Don't, you know, it'll be fine. You know, we'll, that's, that's, that, we'll come back to this and we're not going to deal with it right now. You know, so that's one strategy, isn't it? There's that, you know, that old saying, sleep on it. So that's one strategy, which is with strong emotion. If we can find a way of literally waiting, uh, often um, what will happen is our arousal level will reduce and then we'll start to be able to manage it better. You know, once once we're very highly emotional, it's really quite hard to be rational. And, and actually, it's not the time to try too hard. Normally when that's happening, it's like you, all you need to really try and do is just see, can I not act? Can I somehow wait? Can I find a way of putting time between me and the event? And That's that really will allow me, that yeah, will allow me to s- gain perspective. I wanted to jump in there and say about dispelling the charge because in, uh, I think, polyvagal theory, let me reset that. <clears throat> so from polyvagal theory, there's one description as other theories. Uh, Peter Levine's work on this as well around the nervous system. But there's a charge in the nervous system. It's like mobilized. It's a stress response. You want to move towards something or you want to move away from something. But it's there. You can't make it go away. But if you feel uh, you can't for some reason, you're frozen, well, that's sort of blending into the state of trauma, helplessness, powerlessness. One thing I find really interesting, if, if certainly myself and some people I work with, if there's a high charge, whether it's a move toward or away, mostly it's move away for most people, but they can be, then go, then allow that to express. And I give an example, I had a stressful situation a while back, I went to details, it's very long convoluted, but I felt really, really triggered. I was so stressed and I'm good at dealing with stress. I've got all the skills and all the tools and it wasn't working. And then I, I had this sort of insightful moment thinking, it's a flight response. I feel I physically have to get out of here. And, and I was stuck in a room trying to think my way through the problem. Uh, so I took a, I went for a run. I physically went for a run, which exercised the psoas muscle, the physical body. I went for a run. It wasn't too far, a few miles or so. Came back. I could breathe. My, as you rightly said, my amygdala hijack is often termed. That had kind of settled. And I could think about the challenge I had to deal with. And then I could approach it with some different steps that were actually helpful. So this dispelling the charge, I've, I've found, is very yeah. useful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think also what you said also touched on another thing I think is really important, which is this. I heard this phrase when I was training, and I still hold it in mind, which is you have to be safe in order to feel safe. So sometimes you do have to, the, your priority is actually the external world, not your internal world. So if you are, I don't know, living in an abusive relationship, you don't want to practice emotional regulation. <laughs> Well, you can, but it's really not your primary focus needs to be, actually, I've got to make my world okay. You know, I can't expect my internal world to be fine when my external world is dangerous, for example. So I think that's why I said before, you know, being human is complicated. So I think, you know, if you're, I always say to people, you know, if you're sat in the middle of a road and a bus is coming, that's not the time to practice your breathing. You know, the reason you're feeling anxious is because you're about to get hit by a bus. So you need to get out the road. You know, when you're out the road, if you're, you know, then later that day, you're sat at home having a cup of tea and you're safe and you're feeling anxious. Uh, okay, that's the moment where you can practice your internal, like, regulation. But it's all, it's kind of like, initially, it's like, find the bus. And is there a bus coming? And if there is, we need to deal with it. But if there really isn't, you know, okay, then then it becomes about, okay, so I need to then help myself feel safe because i am safe yeah but that's 
So you know. such a such a great way. Anxiety. I mean, it's, it seems to be ever present and ever growing in our in our world today. And it's curious, isn't it? I'm not a fan of pathologizing this. There are, I know, some kind of biological things and shifts for some people. But in general, I think the misunderstanding around anxiety is that it's a reaction. It's a reaction to stimulus or things that's happening, whether that's uh, thought-based stuff in our own head and with worrying about what people are going to think about us, whether we've messed up, whatever that be, or whether it's, you know, there's a car coming, I need to jump out of the road. But it's actually very elegant as a system. It's, it's designed to keep you safe. So we don't want to start medicating it and getting rid of it and not realizing that it has every place in the world. I think the interesting part is understanding. I, I use the analogy of a smoke alarm because everyone's got one. It's like having a smoke alarm in the kitchen. You put the toast on. It slightly burns and the whole thing goes off. You need to change the sensitivity on the smoke alarm. But you don't want to turn it off because it's there to alert your fire. So, in some ways, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? And regulating these emotions, but without shutting them down, without denying them. And and I think it's about, for me, it's about having a relationship with the emotions, a, a better understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. And and as you said, getting to know, getting to know yourself. I also, I think it's, you know, there's a risk, you know, because we do nowadays, you talk a lot more about trauma and and. And trauma is really important. And, you know, a lot of the significant health problems that people face around addictions and mental health and complex lives, it is absolutely most often related to trauma for people. But there's always a risk in there, I think, that we then get this idea that all stress is bad for us and anything that sparks off our anxiety, as you said, is bad for us. And that's just not true. I mean, stress, like manageable stress, is actually good for us. If you take stress away from someone, it disables them. People overcoming manageable obstacles in life makes us feel competent. Learning to do something we couldn't previously do makes us feel good about ourselves. It's not the case that we should become like a phobic of anxiety, like, oh, anxiety is bad, I have to get rid of it. Not at all. It's a normal part of life. We all get anxious doing, as I said, everyday things like podcasts like this or whatever it is that we're doing or having to do something at work or, or talk to someone about something difficult. That's not bad for us. That's actually the stuff that can help us feel competent and capable as human beings. It's when it becomes, it's when it's toxic, it's when it's unmanageable. Let's say if you're living in a violent relationship or you're being subjugated or harmed in some way when you're, when there's a misbalance in power and you're on the wrong end of it and it's chronic and you can't get away, which obviously that often applies to children because children are inherently vulnerable and in need of care. But obviously those things, yeah, we know it's not surprising. You don't need a psychologist to tell you that. It's pretty obvious. That stuff's not good for us. But I, it's, I, I think it's really important not to mix them up and then start thinking, or oh, anything that makes me stressed is bad for me. That's really not the case at yeah. all. Yeah. So for me, when I think about what we're really trying to express here is regulating emotions doesn't mean getting rid of them. I think it means, so for some ways, for me, it's about getting closer to them and examining them and understanding them. A bit like you might get closer to a painting on the wall that you can see from far away and you see its colours and its textures and its nuances and some bits are nice, some bits are soft, some bits are edgy and hard. And, and I think it's understanding this nuance better and then using tools like meditation, breath work, free framing to, to help. I want to cycle this to meaning now. So we spoke a lot about emotions, but of course we'll cycle and adding meaning because meaning makes stuff good, right? When you do like a job that you love or I don't know, you spend time. 
And of course, we have feelings that tell us that it's a, it's a lovely thing or an exciting thing. That's our feedback system telling us. It's not just a thought, it's a feeling. So when we talk about meaning, I'd like to get your wisdom on, well, how can one apply and get some more meaning, whether it's life or work? But what's your what's your take on this, about how to get that richer meaning in life and work? I was thinking about it. It's a difficult question. <laughs> I don't know why I've, I've given myself to a difficult question, but I think when I was reflecting, I think partly meaning does come back to fulfilling those things that you feel you're capable of. Like I said, the analogy of the knife. If you use a knife to try and, I don't know, undo a bolt on your car engine, it's it's going to try. It's, it's not it's not helpful and it and it's not fulfilling. So I think for me, there's something about meaning which is connected to feeling that we are doing things that we are competent at or that we can become competent at, and that obviously that we enjoy. I mean, the last, and you're talking about going back to the brain gym, the last bit of the brain gym, so you've got the kind of calm yourself down and then the reassess things, refocus, re relook at things. The last bit is focusing on your strengths. What are you good at? You know, what do you like as a person? What what brings you joy? What 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 things do you find satisfying? And and what things are you are you good at? You know, people are always good at something. I always find that's really an interesting question to talk to people about when I'm working with them. I say, well, what, what, what are you good at? And it's amazing. And I include myself in this. Often it's amazing how we don't really think about that very often. Maybe it's not the done thing, you know, no one wants to blow their own trumpet or that kind of thing. But you ask someone, what are you good at? And often that's a really hard question, really hard question to answer. But I think that is... That's a, a part of it for me. It's a part of whatever is meaningful in my life. Is like, what am I? What do I enjoy in life, and what am I? What am I good at? Lovely. Um, yeah, really, really nice. It's so interesting that because when I think about my own journey through certainly my professional career of uh, really being guided by other people's meaning, which you said at the top of our uh, of our session, and not really tapping into my meaning, that sweet young kid that I was growing up and trying to be authentic, it, it got kind of sucked into capitalism, making money, you being in the, the the right cool jobs. And, you know, now I'm very privileged in a way, and I recognize I do have privilege, that I can choose a lot of my own choices and that. It's come through hard work and there are things I, I don't have, but this for me gives me meaning. When I, when I work with the human condition, when I help another person make a change in their life, my goodness, does that make me feel good. And, and that's a lovely, lovely, energizing thing. Now, not all of us can have that in every sphere of our life. Not always it doesn't come to work. But I would say that for me, life is so damn important. It's, it's the most precious gift you're ever going to get. You only get one of them in, in my perspective. So if you can find meaning, if you can't do it in your work, then maybe in your personal life, whether that's hobbies, plays, children, all those different things. But I think you're really onto something here about yeah, what are you good at? What what brings you that lovely, yeah. joyful emotion? And also, I think in there, you you mentioned like helping people. I think connectedness is a big part of it. I think, you know, what we know, isn't it, is if we make someone disconnected, if we isolate, you know, look at COVID, the government got, you know, whatever you think about the government and all of that stuff, they got very worried about locking people in their houses because what they knew was if they locked a thousand people in and then three months later said you can come out, a thousand people are not coming out, you know, 624 will come out and the rest will go, no, I'm good. Thanks. Because isolation make is becomes is generally doesn't go well for us. We tend to get low in mood. We lack, we get demotivated. We feel not good about ourselves and we want to hide away. And that, and there has been a real spike in referrals to mental health services as a result of, 
of COVID. I saw that when I was I worked through COVID in the NHS, and we had a big increase in people being referred. So connectedness is another big part of it. People that we care about, people that we you know, we generally on average we enjoy other people's company. You know, they're not difficult, toxic people. You know, that are trying to cause us misery. So I think that, and not just connectedness with people, connectedness with, I'm going to sound a bit, I mean, I grew up in London and I never really got, I, I was a bit of a city boy and I guess I never really, when people talk about loving the countryside, but I've learned from living down in, in Devon that actually nature is is a, is a hugely giving thing. You know, that if you spend time, there's loads of evidence nowadays, there's loads of evidence about gardening, for example, showing that the benefits it has for mental health that something about the natural world, our nervous system likes it. You know, if you put someone in a forest or in a field, they f generally feel better than if you stick them in a factory or a, an artificial environment. And even things, simple things like the color green sparks the parasympathetic response. So it slows our heart rate. And, you know, apparently that's why they used to paint hospitals green. I don't know if that's true or not that I heard that. So... Yeah, so this connectedness, connectedness to people, connectedness to the natural world. And I think that is why modern life is such a challenge because we were, we had our industrial revolution, didn't we? And we became more industrialized. And yes, we had the, yeah, had the industrial revolution, we became more industrialized. And then we've become, potentially, we are at risk of being less involved in the natural world than than we would have otherwise been. And we have to make an effort to do it rather than it just being a bit like exercise as i said you know you know, we have there are things called gyms now we didn't need gyms because we've probably spent all day having to do such physical stuff but so that those those things i think yeah they they give us a sense of fulfillment and meaning as well very much mm. so yeah lovely really lovely and to 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 flip that one so a lot of the problems i see simplified are disconnection disconnection from someone's thoughts and their feelings from their head from their body from themselves and their partners and their community or their business friends and yeah the the answer is reconnection and it's so interesting it, and again it sounds simple doesn't it and in many ways some of the great things are like you know the, the great masters of the east some of them i follow and you know some of this stuff is simple it's simple and easy are different and it's always important to distinguish that but it's simple it's like go connect with nature but it does take a certain charge, a certain energy and effort to, you know, if you, I live in a city myself and it's, there's a lot of concrete around here. It's not that pleasant. Some of it's lovely. It's by the sea. It's lovely. But the small bit I'm in is I see too much concrete and not enough green. And it, it's, it, it isn't ideal. So it means I've got to travel out to the downs to get some nice green stuff. And, and I feel great then. But when we think about meaning, we're also thinking about feeling. And when we think about feeling, we're thinking about meaning. So as a, as a summary, we want to actually hold those experiences of, of being a human being, whether it's in personal life or in professional life, and realize that emotions and meaning, they work together. And it's really important that you you tend to them. You know, like if you're interested in your food, you get the right macros in, you know, like micronutrients. It's very, very important too. And like you said about the smoke alarm, I guess if we're feeling rubbish, I guess it's a little bit of a, depends, if it's like chronically, then maybe it's, a, like you said, a little bit of a, an alarm saying, we need to have a look at what's in our environment, our internal and our external environment. Have a look and go, okay, something around here is causing trouble. Yeah. And try and try and think what what that might be. It could be like our internal world that we have things going on, or it could be our in our external world. Lovely, really nice. 
So to summarize, how to regulate your emotions and find meaning, well, is work and it's worthy work. In my experience, it sounds like from your experience too, and I don't know about anyone else, but I live with myself 360, 24-7. I'm always with me. So it's definitely worth the energy of like, you know, how you're feeling about life, how you're feeling about yourself and, and the actions and the things that you do. And 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 finding meaning. So hopefully, dear listen, there's plenty you can take away from that. One of the things I was really interested in was the kind of hearing different perspectives but similar to mine about how we have a, a better relationship with emotions and and use some of the strategies and tools that we've got well again we'll put links into the show notes for brain gym uh and so forth but know that emotions are not bad they are emotions regulating emotions as it says it's like perhaps steadying the ship when it needs to but allowing it to flow in the water when the storms are there and it's it's being with and that's, a, I know from, from what Adam, you've said, and my experience, a lot of the Indian influences that I've had is about being with. And that's a nice way to be, being with your thoughts, being with the quiet, being, being with discomfort. And there's meaning in something that lifts you up. You know, as you said, connectedness, all these wonderful things. So, Adam, last final thoughts, perhaps for our listeners who might take some final sort of snapshots and sound bites from your perspective, please. I, well, I guess I, I'm going to have to go back to the one we were just talking about, which is, you know, remember to do things you love, do things that you enjoy. And if you notice you've forgotten to do some of those things, then it's always worth seeing if, if you can if you can do them. Yeah, that would be one. What would the other one be? Another one. I suppose there's something, isn't there, about healthy detachment. So standing back from. So we were talking there about you know, managing difficult moments. One thing I, I've heard a lot of clients say they find really helpful in a really difficult moment, and I can relate to this as well, is some thought around this won't last forever. You know, this is temporary. You know, this will pass kind of thing. I think that one of the things that's really difficult is when we get into a frame of mind where we think that this is never going to get better. And which is, well, I would say it's never true because never's just too long. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just too long. Nothing, nothing that we know about, you know, in the tangible world, it just to last forever. So I think, yeah, a, a healthy sense of impermanence. Yeah, lovely, really nice. And yeah, when you when you're in a really difficult place, it's so vital. Just hang on, like, yep, this will change. This will pass. That's that's a that's a lovely, lovely sentiment to close on. Adam, thank you for your time, your thoughts. I know you have vast amounts to share, or but so much you've shared already, which is wonderful. We will put details in the show notes for Brain Gym, which I believe anyone could download. Is that correct? Absolutely, it's free. We have a website. There's other things on there. People are f- free to you know steal it all and 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 use it to their heart's content. And we're I a- prefer recycle. <laughs> okay, recycle. We're a social enterprise, so we're not for profit. So we like to we enjoy developing resources and and then making them available. Amazing, cool. The links will go in the show notes. So do check out Adam's site. Look at the resources. There's lots of good stuff. I've already been through them. But there's some great stuff. So do have a look. If you want to reach out to Adam again, contact details will be in the show notes. And if you want to reach out to myself, same too. But I want to thank you, Adam. I want to thank dear listener for joining us on this journey. Hopefully there's some things that have triggered you that are going to make a change in your life. If they do, do let us know. Thanks so much. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. And if a friend would benefit from hearing this, do send it on to them as well. If you would like to get in touch yourself, then you can go to my website, which is saljeffries.com, spelled S-A-L-J-E-F-F-E-R-I-E-S, saljeffries.com. 
hit the get in touch link and there you can send me a direct message. If you'd like to go one step further and learn whether coaching can help you overcome a challenge or a block in your life, then do reach out and I offer a call where we can discuss how this may be able to help you. Until the next time, take care.